Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, we are talking about the... Well, no, we're not really talking about the future today. If you heard me before the news, you can tell doing a log line for this particular episode is hard. It's an episode about the fact that it is 2024. It's an episode about the fact that in the past, people have anticipated 2024, uh, sometimes rather presciently. Uh, It's also true, and as you'll hear in just a few moments, that in the past, like the 90s, People anticipated people from the far distant future coming back to 2024, even though in the 90s you couldn't go back to 2024 because it hadn't happened yet. Never mind. I'm just giving myself a headache. We're going to just get going here. Towards the end of the show, by the way, uh, an annual tradition of the Washington Post is their famous in and out list. Uh, and we are going to talk about what they see, what they see as 2024's possibly defining features. But uh, for people who are cool enough to be aware of what the defining features of their present reality is, a group of people, which probably does not include me at this point. Anyway, let's get going. Let's talk a little bit about how writers of speculative fiction, speculative fictional uh, movies and TV shows um, have anticipated how they've thought about a, a possible 2024. In the second segment, we're going to focus in very closely on Parable of the Sower, uh, the novel by Octavia Butler. But there's a lot, a lot to cover, and we have just the right people to do that. Uh, Charles Bromesco uh, is a film and television critic. Uh, Annalie Newitz is a writer of science fiction and nonfiction whose books include The Terraformers and Four Lost Cities, a secret history of the urban age. Their forthcoming book this summer is Stories Are Weapons, Psychological Warfare, and the American Mind. And they're the host, the co-host, excuse me, of the podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. So welcome to both of you. Uh, and we are going to maybe begin um, with uh, you, Charles. Maybe we should point out, Charles, that your vocation slash avocation is exactly this, right? It's, it's getting to a particular year and then thinking about and reviewing what had been predicted fictionally about that year. Could you say a little bit more about this, this pastime of yours? Yeah, this is a, this has been a sort of annual piece that I have written for the guardian for, I think five or or maybe six years now, uh, looking at films from the past set in the current year that is just begun. I always like to do it at the beginning of the year and trying to see what those films can tell us about the present or more frequently than that, uh, the period of the past in which those movies were made. I think you learn a lot about a period of time in inspecting how they project their own anxieties and hopes onto the future. 
Right. So, I mean, let's begin with an example of what we're doing so people will begin to understand it. Uh, this uh, is a movie uh, that was made on <laughs> what would appear to be a relatively low budget uh, in the distant past. It's called Beyond the Time Barrier. Um, actually, we can play a little bit of the trailer for that. Kath, that's A1. Can we play A1? Well, I love that. 64 years into the terrifying future, a beautiful, horrible cave world you've never dreamed of, a beautiful girl and love. Mankind was made sterile in a great cosmic plague. A new Adam and Eve are the only male and female left to repopulate the world. I value my freedom more than this. So you will attempt this escape even though we'll try and stop you. Yes. <laughs> really makes you want to watch it. Although when you watch the visual of it, too, it's kind of where are Mike Nelson and his robots? I mean, this movie looks like <laughs> Mystery Science Theater 3000 fodder, if I ever ever saw it. Uh, the plot, an Air Force pilot tumbles through a tear in time-space continuum and crash lands in the space-age stronghold known as The Citadel. Thus anticipating, among other things, the $300 million Russo Brothers streaming flop called The Citadel, but that was in 2023. <laughs> they missed it by one year. So, Charles... Say a little bit about this. I mean, do your kind, unpack it in your very unique way. Yeah. Uh, so this movie was directed by a fellow named Edgar G. Ulmer, who was the absolute master of the B movie in the 40s and 50s. And he really classed up the joint on a lot of these, as you know, as you say, kind of mystery science theater, very hokey movies. But when you watch it, it's got a uh, great direction and, and pretty nuanced uh, intellectual subtext to even, you know, a sort of. Um, tawdry pulp fiction kind of thing which is that in this future society which as they say has been uh there there's the last man and woman uh, they the birth rates have been extinguished and so everything has become very dystopian and society has kind of sectioned itself off into the citadel as you had mentioned the citadel which is where the uh, rich survivors of humanity live and then there is a class of bald feral mutants sort of prowling around the periphery of the Citadel, you see the power dynamic there, but it's not all that meets the eye in that we uh, ultimately learn that there is some sort of fascistic authoritarian stuff going on inside the Citadel and that these mutants outside are really more of an oppressed underclass. Uh, and so, you know, a uh, easy takeaway there about trying to keep perspective in mind when you are learning about the power dynamics of history, about who was the villain and who were the heroes in conflicts, things of that nature. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think as you suggested in your piece, even though this looks like it was financed on somebody's MasterCard, um, <laughs> it, it it's a little bit smarter than it looks in ways that you've just already suggested. But maybe you want to amplify. Yeah, it's uh, so I mean, a lot of these sci-fi uh, movies from that period in the fifties. The reason that writers with pretty literary backgrounds were attracted to them is that this was a really ready vessel for social commentary. Uh, if you watch Twilight Zone, you know that was their bread and butter. That these things can be allegorized or made into metaphors uh, in a very they're they're very accommodating to that. And so I think uh, someone like Ulmer, who made another movie called Detour, which is you know really existential, really profound. And so you see, he was really he was bringing his big brain to set on this one. But yeah, within the framework of this you know very pop model of sci-fi, we've got you know monsters, uh, time travel, kind of spacemen essentially. But uh, within that, there is some more considered thinking about how ideology changes about how someone who believes one set of things who is in one ideological camp can be turned to another one how experiences can sort of overwrite what we are bred to understand as you know bred to take for granted societally it's uh, there, there's a lot of meat on the bone 
All right. So, um, Annalie, let's uh, bring you in. Uh, so this is the complicated one I was trying to uh, summarize a little bit at the beginning. Star Trek Deep Space Nine um, episodes, if you want to get a specific, uh, I think it's 11 and 12, but it's also past tense parts one and two, uh, made in 1993. Um, and this is, uh, first of all, Deep Space Nine is the Benjamin Sisko, Avery Brooks um, iteration of Star Trek. Uh, and due to a problem with the transporter, which I think yes, is... It's always a transporter yeah. problem. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm Irish American and I love Cole Meany anyway. I just don't feel like putting him in charge of that much technology is a good idea. You know, I just don't, I just don't feel like that's a recipe for success. But anyway, something goes wrong and three members of the crew, including uh, the captain himself, uh, wind up in San Francisco, uh, but in 2024. And non-hilarious complications ensue. So... Um, Annalie, you're in San Francisco right this minute. And I, I have to say, first of all, I'm a frequent visitor to San Francisco. It's been a while. Um, but I was watching it and I was thinking, you know, just in terms of like one of the driving plot points being the herding of homeless or unhoused and mentally ill people into an enclosure where they can't bother the rich tech bros. Um, I, they weren't that far off the mark, really, about 2024. But what's your take? Yeah, it was quite, it's quite uncanny how prescient it is. Um, I was rewatching the episodes uh, in preparation to chat with you today. And I was really struck by how this is a story that could be told now. Um, the premise, of course, is just that um, there's this ruling class in San Francisco, and it's suggested throughout the United States. They mentioned that this is happening in major cities throughout uh, the states. Um, unhoused people have been herded into sanctuary districts, and they're being um, tracked through, uh, you know, electronic surveillance. They're all issued a card, and their uh, entrance and exit from the sanctuary district is heavily monitored. Um, so it's this kind of high-tech dystopia where um, homeless people are in this walled space, this district. Um, but what really struck me as funny about this episode is that you know, it's made in the 1990s. And the premise is that this sanctuary space where the unhoused are, they're being fed, they're being given minimal medical care, but there is still some, there's some power, uh, there's a, a kind of bureaucracy there that serves the unhoused. Um, and it's all because of the government. The government is funding all of this stuff, which is not a fantasy that I think we would have now. I think that what we confront now is, in fact, like lack of government oversight, lack of social programs for unhoused people. But in the 90s, when this show was made, of course, we were in the middle of this huge debate over what should we do with social spending? What should we do with welfare programs? The Clinton administration was dismantling a welfare state that had been in place for decades. And I think those anxieties kind of percolate into this show. But the one thing that they predict incorrectly, or one of the many things they predict incorrectly, is that that there would be some kind of welfare state that was taking care of the unhoused population. Um, and, and that's just not, you know, that's a really, it's an interesting contrast to how things have actually turned out. Yeah. And there is this, I mean, I don't want to sort of... <laughs> 
I, I don't know why I would be worried about worried about spoilers at this point. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> spoilers but, for a thirty year old show, guys. Yeah. But there is there's, <laughs> there's this notion that kind of runs through these two episodes that that yes, uh, Cisco in particular knows the history, uh, yeah. the kind of post twenty twenty four history, and he knows <laughs> that our social problems are actually going to be solved. I think that phrase is almost used. That you mm-hmm. know the, the social problems are going to be solved. Uh, that you're really watching the death knell of social problems here. And that, I guess, we could look at that one of several different ways, Annalie, as mm-hmm. an, an instance of incredible ninth day. Well, or, you know, yeah, you got to give people some hope. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that's fantastic about this episode is that we discover that the way that all of our social problems will be solved, poof, is that there's going to be this huge uprising in the sanctuary district. All of these unhoused folks who've been marginalized and treated like crap are going to rise up. They're going to call attention to the terrible um, conditions in the sanctuary district. And everyone will, I guess, all the voters will rally around uh, the idea of uh, once again creating a more robust welfare state that will that will take care of our most um, you know vulnerable members. But the thing that's so cool about this, and again, spoilers for a thirty year old episode, <laughs> is that um, the person who's supposed to lead that uprising turns out to be through a bunch of timey wimey twisty wisty stuff. It turns out that it is none other than Captain Cisco, our hero. Um, through, again, shenanigans. So he is the fellow who has been mistaken for an unhoused person. He's now in one of these sanctuary districts, and he has to lead this uprising. And the reason this is so cool is that what the show is suggesting is that this guy, who is an incredible, accomplished captain, he's a diplomat, he's just, he's a, a hero in every way, but that in the in 2024, he would be an unhoused guy leading an uprising. So our future utopia of Star Trek, the the most elevated members of that of that group that run Starfleet, are the same people who would be leading an uprising uh, in the 21st century. So that's a really amazing statement. It's basically saying like, you know, these people who are unhoused, like in a more just society, they would be your leaders. They would be starship captains. All right, so Charles, let's. Uh, I mean, we're going to sort of get to some through lines here uh, near the end of this particular part of the uh, of the show. But um, let's talk about a boy and his dog, uh, which is the answer to what else can Don Johnson do besides Miami Vice? It's 1975. <laughs> uh, he's playing a young, not particularly principled. Um, this is a <laughs> this is pretty a pretty solidly amoral. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a movie that doesn't really age that well. Although paradoxically, it kind of became a cult movie. Uh, but I should let yeah, you, well, I, I should let you sketch yeah, it out. Of course, uh, yeah. I, I think the the value it has to a, a viewer today, and I think a lot of the entertainment value it has as a novelty object and as a document of its time, is specifically that as as a sort of relic from a period in filmmaking during the seventies, which was some real wild eyed times uh, when you could get away with quite a bit. Which is to say that this film is about a I suppose serial assaulter of woman would be the best way to put it, and his telepathic talking dog who are lured by some temptresses into a subterranean society of Amazon women where he believes that he will be um, sort of free to peruse some manner of carnal buffet, I guess is how I would put it, uh, only to find out that he is really uh, more more the meal than the diner. 
Uh, and so there is certain, you know, the, the joke ultimately is on this character, but on the way to that comeuppance, there is some pretty grisly chauvinistic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, the dog is kind of a form of comic relief. I think somebody said it sounded a little bit like the voice of Kit in Knight Rider, uh, but maybe just- <laughs> That is, that's the dynamic, yeah. <laughs> um, and and I don't know. There. So, so one of the things that it t- attempts to do is also kind of anticipate aspects of the future. Uh, World War Four has taken place. It was five days long. There's a recita- recitation uh, of the names of presidents stretching out into 2024, but it just kind of goes Kennedy, 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 which is not quite right. I mean, it, it turns out they did not understand Ronald, Ronald Reagan was on the way when they made this movie. Um, but so there's an attempt to sort of think a little bit about 2024. I don't know how well you thought think that they did that. Yeah, well, I mean, um, this movie uh, really shoots from the hip uh, in terms of its politics. And we see in that sort of uh, shotgun spray of ideology, they hit some pretty good targets. I mean, for instance, you, you mentioned the Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy joke. Uh, well, they did not anticipate Reagan. Political dynasty building is very much a thing. There were two Bush presidents after they made this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, you know, it's very satirically minded, very politically minded. Uh, the 70s was a very anti-authoritarian time. And so there is, to a certain extent, a kind of escapist way that they look at this post-apocalyptic society as a world without rules, where a man, uh, you know, a sort of ghastly, unseemly man, but a man all the same is free to do whatsoever he pleases, which, you know, again, this uh, being the 70s uh, was mostly sexual. (laughs) Right. So, Annalie, I mean, on your podcast a lot, uh, you folks talk about how to think about the future, how to world build a different time period or how to world build a different world. And and as Charles has already suggested, and I think that you would agree, a movie like this made in the 70s is probably more about the 70s than it is about 2024. But can you say more than that uh, as as you think about how people map out this future, that this imagined future that they're they're going to set things in? Absolutely. I think whenever there's a story about the future, it it really is about kind of the anxieties and concerns of the present day. And I think what's useful about going back and looking at what we imagined the future would be is that we can really um, learn from the kind of mistaken projections that we made. Like I said, with the Star Trek episode where um, the we imagine that the welfare state will remain relatively intact, it'll be um, it won't be adequate, um, but it, it will still exist um, in, in ways that it doesn't exist now. And I think this is useful. Um, you know, we've been talking about politics. A lot of policy, you know, when when politicians and policymakers sit down to try to figure out how to allocate resources and, and you know, what our five-year plan or 10-year plan should be for infrastructure, for example, they're engaging kind of in this sort of futurism, in in a, a bit of a world-building activity. And looking at our stories and the ways that our predictions fall short can really educate us about what a realistic way might be to look at the future and to, and to really consider the fact that the future can take us in unexpected directions. There can be multiple outcomes of a particular event, um, events that seem dystopian can actually lead us to a better place. That's what Star Trek always uh, shows us. Um, and so I think it it becomes uh, really instructive for much more like futurism where kind of the rubber meets the road, where we're really um, thinking about how we want our government to exist in the future, for example. I'm also wondering whether 
and bo- both of you should answer this, but Annalie, I want to stay with you for just a second here. Um, you know, I, I feel that the speculative fiction set in a different time, yeah, it does probe <laughs> the anxieties of the moment and the confusions of the moment. I'm thinking about uh, 65, uh, 75, excuse me, when this movie was made, and I'm thinking, well, Erica Young's Fear of Flying came out in 1973. Uh, really what you had been through in the time leading up to the release of this movie um, it would have been a time in which there was a fair amount of confusion about sexual freedom. Uh, the late 60s were kind of a so-called sexual revolution. It was also kind of the dawning, sure. of, dawning of feminism, too. I, I, I can't pull out of thin air the founding of Ms. Magazine, but we're probably not too far off there. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, a movie like this where this, you know, this protagonist in a fairly <laughs> horrific way uh, is exploring his idea of sexual freedom. But there's a bill that comes due, right? You have to pay a tab at some point. And I'm wondering if that's maybe a little bit at the heart of these things, the idea of the 70s that we kind of opened up a whole bunch of new worlds of sexual possibility. But it was also clear that there would be winners and losers within that format and, and that there was going to be some kind of future accounting for that, if, if I'm making any sense at all. That is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, one of the the lovely things about A Boy and His Dog, which is a movie that I'm quite fond of, um, is that, you know, we have this um, fellow who, uh, as Charles was saying, you know, he's just sort of going around humping lots of women and his dog offers lots of wry commentary about that. <laughs> um, and then when he is taken down into this underground world, which is really fascist, like Jason Robards is like the scariest, um, you know, kind of weird puritanical fascist leader down there. Um, Don Johnson is turned into a sex object. Like they're like, oh, you thought you were going to be humping people? Uh, No, you're going to be hooked up to like a weird milking machine. And then I'm pretty sure they're planning to just kill him. Like, I I don't think they're going to keep him around once they extract all of his sperm. And so he's like, wait, what? I'm the object? Wait, I'm going to be just tied up and forced to perform sexually like the way women have for centuries? This is upsetting. Um, And so I, I think that that is precisely what you're describing, this kind of imagining the next step in feminism, right? Like, well, what if feminism went so far that men just became baby makers? Um, and well, I think I mean, a, it's a little bit that, but it's also, as I say, there's a tab, there's a bill that you have to pay, you know, and it turns out, I mean, you can't just like hump everybody. Uh, I would say from 68 to, to maybe about 73, there was this kind of notion that everybody could run, run around humping everybody else and there really wouldn't be too many different. I mean, the pill came in, yeah. a lot of things came in. I think this movie suggests no. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> Yeah. And I think part of the no is that like, Feminism. I mean, this is a film that is satirical of feminism, I think, in a lot of ways, but it's also this awareness that this growing awareness that, oh, but women also have a point of view on this and that things could flip, you know, and 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 an anxiety that they would flip, because, of course, feminism has never been about flipping the power. It's been about democracy, equalizing the power between the sexes. Um, but yeah, I think that that anxiety sure really shows through. Like, what if women treated us the way we've been treating women? Right. So, Charles, um, for, first of all, I want to say that a year later, Jason Robarts was Ben Bradley in All the President's Men. So he, <laughs> he was a force <laughs> for good at that point. Uh, but, Sir Charles, I don't know. First of all, 2024, I mean, you do this every year. Is 2024 a, a good crop, so to speak? 
Yeah, it, this is actually uh, as I was going through because some years you know you gotta kind of start scraping the direct to video dollar bin to to find some stuff. But no, a lot of interesting titles this year, and I think I, I was wondering why that is. I think it might be phonetic. I think the saying twenty twenty four out loud kind of sounds like a like a malfunctioning robot. Kind of sounds like some sort of like AI stutter. And I think people are drawn to that. It also, in terms of divisibility, it's a nice kind of round number. It appears in the brain very readily. I don't know, but uh, there, there is, yeah, there's been more thought about this year than uh, in in the past few prime numbers. I think don't get as much play. No, yeah, that's 2023. <laughs> there's not much. But Charles, also, yeah, it's also, I mean, it's counting by fours uh, and president, right. presidential cycles and Olympics and things like that. They count by fours. Um, and so, I mean, that I'm just sort of yes ending basically what what you just said. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's why if you you know look at this more broadly, the most predicted year before it actually happened, of course, was 2000. That was the one people were obsessed with because they assumed it's such a round pleasing number something must uh, have happened something was going to happen uh, and that's yeah. like i think that's where a lot of y2k come from just people thinking about times tables and division right and then there was 2012 when the mayan calendar was going to kill us all or something that's exactly like that. right yeah right. Uh, all right so well we have to uh, take a little pause here uh, these are both wonderful wonderful guests and i'm really starting to enjoy uh, their other work which i'm seeking out and i encourage you to do it too uh, charles bromesco is a t- film and television critic he wrote about 2024 for the Guardian. Annalie Newitz is a writer of science fiction and nonfiction, and I do recommend uh, the podcast that they co-host, which is Our Opinions Are Correct. We will take a little break, and we will come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, that was the Winans. 
I love that song. I've loved it for years. Um, I just want to quickly point out, I don't usually call a lot of attention to the music that we use on the um, show. I do want to say that we went out of the previous segment with um, a song called 2024 by Tyson James. Tyson James is a conservative Christian MAGA-affirming rapper um, <laughs> whose views are really... Um, well, they're very unpalatable. But, I mean, you know, all these dystopian futures that we talk about, uh, all these ways of imagining 2024, he'd fit into most of them. Uh, anyway, joining us now, I, I think the most indelible, the most enduring portrait of 2024 in speculative fiction is not any of the things we talked about in the A, but Octavia Butler's book, uh, her novel, uh, The Parable of the Sower. So joining us is Cassandra L. Jones, Assistant Professor of uh, African Studies uh, at University of Cincinnati. Her, her forthcoming book is Black Speculative Feminisms, Memory and Liberated Futures in Black Women's Speculative Fiction. Cassandra L. Jones, welcome to our our conversation. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So Parable of the Sower begins in 2024. It actually moves forward in time a few years from there. Mm -hmm. But, um, and we should say it was uh, written in the early 90s, um, published in 93. Um, you know, we, we were just saying in the previous segment that the time that you're writing in or the time you're creating in, when you create a future world, you bring a lot of the anxieties you have at that moment. Uh, into, yes. into the future you imagine. I, I think this is very true for Butler, but uh, say a little bit about how you see that in this work. Sure. I think, uh, you know, where DS9 had the sanctuary and existing welfare, um, Octavia Butler's world has company towns and abject poverty. So she is really thinking about She's looking around at what is happening in the early 90s, the rise of gated communities, the um, that 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 defunding of various public institutions and thinking, well, what if these things continue, you know, unchanged? What is that future going to look like? So she is um, equally, you know, she's got those those kinds of anxieties um, present in her work. She's, you know, projecting them into a future in a way that I think makes her work a little bit um, more prescient. I think that's why she keeps coming up in conversation recently, because we see a lot of the things that she predicted coming true. Um, particularly around defunding public institutions, you know, like public schools, welfare systems. Um, in her world, there are no you know, fire departments. Uh, so there's a real kind of pulling away from communal care and, and investment in communities towards investing in one's own family first. Uh, and that, that comes up politically uh, as well as kind of socially. Yeah, I mean, not only you said the thing, thing about fire departments, but also water is so scarce that when you put out a fire yes. with water, you are essentially using water that you would have wanted to drink or use for some other purpose. So I, I'm always amazed by how speculative fiction writers do see around corners, do see. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did a show right at the time of the beginning of the pandemic. And we just went through, we did the same thing. We went through all the ways that speculative fiction had just seen this coming in, in detail. We even found a story where people were baking in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> no, which is exactly what right. happened. But yes. um, I still have trauma around running out of yeast. Right. So early 90s, I remember early 90s talking and writing about global warming and maybe Absolutely. even a little bit before that, 
the hole in the ozone layer. And there were, I mean, that's been around, but it really wasn't part of mainstream conversation. It's kind of interesting. I mean, everything that's dystopian in Parable of the Sower, I, I think it kind of starts with climate change, with just the, the uninhabitability uh, of a lot of the Absolutely. planet. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what there is to say about this other than Butler well, did I, this amazing job. Well, I agree. Job. I yeah. mean, she's definitely, yeah, she's hitting climate change. She's hitting droughts, heat waves, you know, wildfires uh, raging out of control. And at the same time, she's looking at how that has a knock-on effect on political um, stability, economic stability, and it creates these kind of mass migrations of people moving north. Uh, and um, she has them I mean, literally battling wildfires, but uh, what what we're seeing is that um, the kind of uh, separation of, of families that are that are happening both through these traumatic events, through the um, through the you know, through the the kind of um, forced migration. We also, I think the way that she is able to see around those kinds of corners has to do with her as a, as a kind of individual, right? She was an active reader. She was a news junkie. She read newspapers, listened to radio programs, science magazines. I mean, she collected all, all of these various sources and then she saved them. And I would say not only that, she was an active reader. You know, she's taking notes in the margins. She's making connections to other pieces that she's read. She's asking questions and again really thinking about why these things are happening and then projecting on if we do not change them what is the end result of these types of policies you know if we're not going to pay any attention to climate change if we're thinking about how do we you know we're just going to ask for more studies more studies before we actually take any action what is that going to do to the lived experience of people um, you know, in precarious positions, they they are. Um, how is a drought going to impact people who are already kind of struggling to make ends meet? If the price of water goes up, if the price of food goes up, right? How will that impact communities? So what we see in Lauren Olamina's case is that she is a woman in a um, you know barely hanging on to lower middle class or a young woman, um, and. And when her community collapses, she is left with nothing, just a couple of people from this community, and she is forced to rebuild her life. Uh, and what she takes away from that, which I think is so, so fascinating, and what makes Parable of the Sower such a wonderful book to read, is that she's created this, um, she's created this religion for herself, Earthseed, where the, the core tenet is that change is the only constant in the universe. And so we have to be aware of how things might change because they inevitably will. And we have to be able and ready to shape change. So she uses that as a way to build community, to kind of bring people closer to her um, along the road. And through that building of community is then able to kind of find a new a new sort of stability. So I think what makes this book then so wonderful for us is that it really gives us a, a bit of a, a framework, you know, a kind of a set of guidelines. Here is what you do. Here's how you survive these terrible times, right? First of all, listen to Black women. Second of all, right, form community. That's really, really key. There's also within the Earthseed concept. There's kind of the notion of, of sustainability, um, yes. which I, I I think was a concept in in ninety two ninety one when she went, might have been writing this, but maybe not the way that it is it is now. Um, and, and, and that intrigues me. But 
talk about seeing around corners and to see around this, mm. to have her see around this corner, we have to add another book because it really is parable of the talents when this happens. But as we see, <laughs> yes. as we see political leadership bo- in both of these books, first of all, there isn't any really good political leadership. I mean, people running mm. for president are pretty dreadful. Um, but in 2024, we literally get a president whose slogan is make America great again. Uh, that is yeah. pretty astonishing. Talk about that. We sure do. Yeah. So the, you know, in Parable of the Sower, we get a sort of milquetoast candidate who is just really maintaining the status quo. And because we're seeing this, you know, economic decline, uh, people really gravitate gravitate towards this kind of this this fascist leader with a giant personality who's claiming to the world that we can return to our greatness that we had. Uh, and it gets just enough of this um, of this sort of apathetic voter group to 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 really mobilize and and vote for him. And that then has um he he brings with him this this kind of emboldened um group of white supremacists and um and then, you know, uh, uh, far right Christian groups who then kind of take it upon themselves to to, I guess, sort of discipline groups that have uh, less power than they do. So we end up seeing children ripped away from families and uh, adopted into, you know, quote unquote, proper Christian homes. Uh, All of these communities sort of destroyed in ways that, of course, replicate uh, the, the same kinds of power structures that, that we saw during, you know, like the, uh, let's say the, like, kind of riots against black communities yes. in, in the early 20th century. Yeah. I mean, there's so much in this book that, I mean, 2024 is when it's set. Uh, there's so much in the book that really looks like 2016 to 2020, early 2021 in in many ways. And I mean, even st- the stuff about the space program. I, today I went back and I watched this speech that Trump gave, uh, I think it was about 2019. Uh, and he was at the Kennedy Space Center, but he's like praising Elon Musk to the skies, quite literally. And that the way in which space so we should say that no matter despite the fact that earth is incredibly impoverished and that uh, Lauren's living environment is incredibly impoverished that has not stopped the exploration of Mars in 2024 um and and there's kind of that notion of frontier I can think embedded in that but I, I thought in that way Butler she kind of had a pretty good handle on the present moment I think we, we still think about space that way yeah and I think that um she also kind of saw the way that people would be pushing back against wanting to explore Mars um, as why are we spending money in these locations when we could be um, addressing problems here on Earth. But Butler's view and then Lauren's uh, point of view as well within the novel is that we should, of course, we should be looking at the stars because if we are going to keep on this track, we may well destroy this planet. So what are we going to do? How will we survive? Uh, So she really has, um, Lauren has this, you know, the saying that we need to take root among the stars, that that's the destiny of humanity. Um, so that I think in that way that she she has that kind of push and pull with the relationship to, to NASA and space exploration. So Cassandra L. Jones, the last question I have time to ask you is about the title of the book. So the parable of the sower in the Bible, Jesus is talking about the seeds that are scattered for different kinds of ground. Um, but I'm also thinking about whether Butler herself considered this novel to be a parable. In other words, this is a, this is a story uh, that is meant to illustrate a point about how one's behavior might affect uh, future conditions. I mean, I, I, I don't know if we know anything about that, but I'm wondering whether the title is almost has a double meaning. 
Well, she did talk about how her writing is meant to be instructive. You know, that there um that she found the process of writing for herself healing, but that she also really was trying to provide provide some ideas about um insight into what might happen again if these things remain unchanged, but also how we might deal with those. So she really did think about this novel in that in that way. All right. We have to pause now, but Cassandra L. Jones is assistant professor of Africana Studies uh, at University of Cincinnati. Her forthcoming book is Black Speculative Feminisms, Memory and Liberated Futures in Black Women's Speculative Fiction. Thank you so much for your time today. And we're going to take a little break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the always fascinating and tantalizing, but also to clueless people like me, puzzling in-out list of The Washington Post. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. We're about to talk about the Washington Post in-out list. Our technical producer today is Cad Pastor, who thinks that just because Summer House is in, that doesn't mean Vanderpump Rules is out. Uh, and uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. She produced this episode. I'm not even going to get into her theories about any of this stuff. But we're very excited to have with us Maura Judkus, a feature reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome to our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. So how long is, I, I have sort of very specific memories of the in-out list, so I need, but I need to know, how long has it been going? Like a really long time now, right? Yeah, 1978. It's this tradition that's been handed down to various Washington Post feature writers ever since, and I'm the latest one. Yeah, I remember working in a newspaper uh, features department in the 1990s, and we would we would look at it every year, and we would know almost always the out things. The things that were out, we would sort of recognize, and then the, the things that were in, we often didn't really know about. And now that I've gotten older and I work in public radio, I don't know, I often don't recognize either the out thing or the in thing, although there are exceptions to this that we will go over. But maybe is it is it folly to ask you if there's any kind of spotty, semi-broken through line that you see as you put something like this together? I mean, is everything just sort of specific to its category or do you ever sort of think, oh, yeah, so 2024 is this kind of year? Yeah, so you can kind of take the temperature of a year in a way. Um, you know, when we look back through previous lists, we all like to see kind of what the mood has been. We try to capture that mood. Are people optimistic? Are they depressed? Are they just very blasé about all these trends? You know, especially after there's been like a big event, like our um, our first post-pandemic uh, list was a pretty unusual list for sure. A lot of references to that too, but you could kind of capture the optimism, a little bit of the vaccines had just come out. People were starting to feel like they could emerge a little bit. You know, you can kind of see what the vibe is based on all the collective items of the list. Yes, I, I would agree. Um, so let's talk about some specific ones. If people have never um, seen this, uh, they might not really get the drift of it. Um, we wanted to talk about, because we did, we did multiple shows about the Roman Empire last year after it surfaced on TikTok that men think about the Roman Empire all the time. Of course we do. Uh, but uh, the Roman Empire is going to be out. It is out. Uh, and the Mayan Empire is in. You better help us understand that because we're going to have to do three or four Mayan Empire shows and we don't want to be wrong about this. <laughs> so um, so first of all, that one came from our from one of our science reporters. You know, part of what we do for the list, I kind of see myself as a curator. like. I can't possibly know every single thing that could be in and out 
Um, what I do is I do a lot of research. I talk to reporters from across the newsroom about what they're seeing on their beats. We consult polling. We look at what trend forecasting agencies are saying, but we don't really necessarily take that as gospel necessarily. Um, we pay attention to big film and music releases too. Uh, and so that one came from a science reporter. Um, there's been a lot of interesting archaeology work happening there. Um, they have been discovering a lot of new cities. Uh, they think there will be more uh, uncovered, more things uncovered in the next year. But it also came from like, aren't we a little bit sick of talking about the Roman Empire by now? You know, we try to be very forward thinking in the list. So things that were a really big topic in the previous year, like, they kind of have to be out because we have to move on to something new. We often move on to something new. So part of that thinking too was like, well, there's some interesting discoveries that that are probably going to happen this year, but also let's give men a new empire to think about. I'm ready. I could do it. I mean, you know, the Roman Empire will never be totally out for me, but I'm ready. I, I did notice this must be sort of a good feeling that uh, on Saturday night, uh, on Saturday Night Live, Jacob Elordi, who's actually out on your list, uh, was the host of Saturday Night Live. But Renee Rapp, who's in on your list, was the musical act. It was like they just they just did a Maura Judkiss episode of Saturday Night Live just for you. I can't take any credit, but I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah. So um, well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about um, – so I, this is very upsetting to me, Maura. Uh, the, the the return of cargo pants is out. Um, I you know, I don't see this as something that ebbs and flows. Cargo pants, cargo pants are a staple. And then the return of peplum is in. And I have to say that I didn't know what peplum was. And going to the L magazine link didn't really help me very much. But but tell me about all this. <laughs> so I mean, fashion trends obviously are always a huge part of our in and out list. Um, and you know, we try to just be a little bit more cheeky than just like, this is the type of thing that will be in, this will be out. One thing that we've been noticing a lot in fashion is this return to some styles that were popular with millennials, maybe when they were in middle school or high school, things that millennials have already tried and maybe discarded because they weren't really that flattering the first time around. Um, and so cargo pants had a big revival last year um, among Gen Z, uh, who, who seemed to be discovering them for the first time. They like the comfort of them. Um, the cargo pants revival, though, it's it's got to be out because it's been happening for the last year. We're on to a new revival of something from that era, too, which is peplum. Both are pretty controversial styles. Um, millennials have already rejected both of these and are maybe both kind of dismayed and also a little excited to see them come back. Um, but, you know, we <laughs> people sometimes get upset when we put something on the list because they're like, well, I don't want peplum to come back. And it's like, look, I'm not the <laughs> making peplum go back. I covered Fashion Week in September and it was all over the runways. Like, it's happening. It's not my choice. So. Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit like every year in early June, typically we do a, an episode about, episode about the Song of the Summer. And we have to explain it to everybody. The Song of the Summer is not about what you like or what we like. It's about what the Song of the Summer is. Uh, and we don't have any control over that. And it's certainly not an expression of taste. I, I think the same thing is true here. Well, speaking of that kind of generational conflict, uh, blaming boomers for Trump is out. Blaming Zoomers for Trump is in. Talk about that one. Yes. So, I mean... Many people are used to blaming boomers for things, especially people of younger generations. Um, they're used to blaming boomers for Trump. Uh, but 
There's this growing dissatisfaction that people are seeing among some of the youngest voters um, that they're having with President Biden and some of his policies. Um, They also, according to some polling, are the generation most interested in the third party candidacy of RFK Jr. Um, So if enough of them vote for a spoiler candidate, we could be blaming Gen Z for a second Trump presidency rather than the boomers. So um, this is the point where I want to this is my sort of the moment where you say keep your day job Um, because uh, I had some thoughts about uh, things that might be in and out. Um, One of them is linguistic. I'm going to say that scope is out and ambit is in. So it's like, you know, that's not within the scope of the Supreme Court's, you know, area of consideration. Uh, I think that's been replaced by ambit. Um, It's not within the ambit. I listen to a lot of podcasts. People are saying ambit. Uh, tell me I could to... see that being. I could see that being the case too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably hate this. Like people come to up to your parties and say, "You know what? I've got one for you." That's going to be really incredibly annoying. <laughs> well, what it often puts me in a weird position of like they come to me with something that is already really in, which means categorically it almost has to be out in 2024. Or it's something that's already out. And we have this saying when we do these list brainstorms that something is actually too out to be out. Like if it was already out in September or October of the previous year, like it's too out to even be out on the 2024 list. Um, So then, you know, you have to kind of let them down gently a little bit. (laughs) Right. I teach college undergraduates and yesterday one of them told me that the Muppets are over. And I thought the Muppets have to be kind of eternal, right? I don't. Th- are the Muppets subject to the vagaries uh, and vicissitudes of style and yearly taste? <laughs> I mean, in my heart, the Muppets are never out. Uh, but again, it's like you know, sometimes these trends are forces beyond what any of us like to see. Like there are definitely things that I have been like really sad to put on the list because like, <laughs> oh, I, I just I just bought that, you know? But you know what? It's like, it's not up to me. It's the list. It's a force of its own. You so. know perfectly well you ran out in November and bought Peplum up the Kazootie. <laughs> hey, I still have my old Peplum from the first time it was here, actually. So no. it's vintage Peplum. Yeah, I, I'm worried about insider trading here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you're going to be like those senators who dump their airline stock, you know, when <laughs> <laughs> broke out or something. Um, but yes, and I think it's also a mistake. For example, I had what I knew was a false aperçu today. Uh, we're almost out of time here anyway, but I was at the dentist and they didn't have the little swirly spittoon anymore. You know, the little swirly spittoon. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, no, we're out. nobody's going to do this anymore. So, oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, jot that down on a post-it. Okay, I'll remember it. Uh, and yeah, I'm sure it's not going to be. It'll be out next year. It's not cool <laughs> enough to be interesting what happens at the dentist. Maura Jenkins, uh, features reporter for The Washington Post, and the heir of the very important tradition of the in-out list, what's in and what's out for 2024, appeared uh, December 29th in The Washington Post. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, we get to say goodbye. Uh, unless goodbye is out. Uh, adieu. Adieu. And we will be back. Make it